Join us now for Education Matters, a weekly look at the real people and real stories in education across North Carolina. Welcome to Education Matters, presented by the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I'm Keith Poston. Studies show that children who regularly experience trauma during their young lives score lower than their peers on standardized tests, are more likely to fail a grade, are placed in special education more frequently, and are more likely to be suspended and expelled. Research has helped to answer the question why, and the results may surprise you. The good news is we're also beginning to understand how to address it and help these children succeed in and out of school. We're going to talk challenges and solutions on today's show. Before we tackle our main topic, we open with headlines, a quick scan of education headlines across North Carolina and the U.S. The impact of the General Assembly's class size mandate is stretching beyond grades K through three, potentially affecting pre-K and middle and high school classes, as well as thousands of art, music, and PE teachers, as we've discussed on the show before. Our organization, the Public School Forum of North Carolina, reported last week on several school districts, including nearby Warren County, who said they may be forced to shutter their pre-K program in order to use the classroom space to meet the lower caps. Guilford County Schools report they have increased middle school class sizes and spent $8 million already this school year to meet the caps and will struggle next year to hire the 400 to 500 new elementary school teachers necessary to comply. A nationally recognized expert in school finance cautioned state lawmakers to take their time and get as much input as possible before making any large-scale changes to North Carolina's school funding model. Michael Griffith of the Education Commission of the States shared those thoughts as he presented before the Joint Legislative School Finance Reform Task Force last week. Griffith said unintended consequences can result from a rushed process and also said adequacy and equity ought to be considered when undertaking such a significant change and how the state funds public education. The new North Carolina Teaching Fellows Program created this year by the North Carolina General Assembly has selected the first five schools that will participate in the new version of the program. They are Elon University, Meredith College, NC State, UNC Chapel Hill, and UNC Charlotte. We're actually gonna have two of those deans on next week's show. Finally, the State Board of Education has formally petitioned the North Carolina Supreme Court to take up its nearly year-long lawsuit against the state school superintendent and General Assembly over control of the state's public schools. In July, a three-judge panel ruled in favor of Superintendent Johnson, but the board appealed. Last month, the North Carolina Supreme Court granted the board's motion for a temporary stay. That stay is in effect until further notice. Most observers, frankly, predicted this matter would ultimately be decided by the Supreme Court. Remember, you can visit the Public School Forum's website at ncforum.org, click Education Matters, and read more about each of the headlines as well as other topics we cover each week. As I said at the top of the show, today we're going to talk about childhood trauma and its impact on students. Our first guest is going to help us understand the research. Dr. Katie Rosenbaum, she is the research scholar at the Duke University Center for Child and Family Policy. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I guess I should say welcome back to the show. You were on about a year ago when we, when the forum had just completed the study on uh, around childhood trauma and learning. So let's just get some definitional things up front. Absolutely. What is trauma? So trauma is not the event itself. It's a person's reaction to an event that is so threatening to them that it overwhelms their ability to cope with it. And that can include things that, like, like violence in the community and the home, 
but it also can include things like natural disasters or accidents. And for a child, those threats can be an, a caregiver who's not able to provide their basic needs due to poverty, due to substance abuse or mental illness, or due to the caregiver being absent from the home. I think that's interesting. The, the trauma is the response. So you could actually, and you could have, say, uh, children in the same home, and something affects them differently. Very and you differently. You really talk about Absolutely. the effect. Our, the ACEs. Mm -hmm. Adverse childhood experiences. We're hearing more about that, mm -hmm. which is actually, it's a good thing that we're hearing more about it to learn more about it. But so, what are ACEs and sort of comparing that to what is about trauma? So ACEs kind of come from a different perspective. So instead of thinking about the reaction, an adverse childhood experience just talks about what did you experience as a child. So it started with this landmark study back in the late 1990s when the Centers for Disease Control and Kaiser Permanente did a study of 17,000 adults and asked them about 10 different categories of adversity, just like the ones that I just mentioned. Yeah, that we've they actually got some coming up on the screen Great. right now so that our yeah. viewers can see the, the kinds of categories. Go ahead. So exactly, so, so they counted up the number of these areas that someone might have experienced in their childhood, and what they found really amazed them, that 64% of the adults in this study reported at least one of these areas of adversity in their childhoods, and in fact, more than one in five, about 22%, reported adversity in three or more categories of these um, ACEs in their childhood. Now, why was Kaiser and, and the Center for Disease Control, I mean, why were they asking people about their childhood experiences right. in the first place? Right, well, you know, what they really wanted to understand is, what impacts do these adverse events have on later outcomes in life? You know, how can we predict how these childhood events might roll out down the road to impact our well-being? And they were astounded to find the direct correlation between the number of adverse events that someone had experienced in their childhood and almost every outcome that they looked at, from substance abuse, obesity, um, depression, all the way to things like cancer, liver disease, and heart disease risk increased the more adversity you'd experience as a child. It's like you said, for an insurance company, they were looking at how, I mean, they're thinking about prevention and how exactly. to get, I mean, you and I were talking before we started rolling, the one that, mm -hmm. uh, that jumped out at me and uh, stuck with me is the obesity one, that the, yeah. the physician who was one of the lead researchers on this just started noticing as he was doing sort of family history that he, he thought it seemed like a lot of them had child sexual abuse in their, in their past. And as it turned out, 55% of his patients who were obese had been abused sexually as children. Yes, and that was when he first realized there's something going on here and we need to look into it more. Now, so, so, what do, so why does um, these, why does it increase risk? I mean, so what, what happens? Or why does this increase the risk of these different things happening to a person as they get older? So we have to think about what happens in our brains. So when we experience threat, our brains prepare us to go into one of three reactions, fight, flight, or freeze. So that means we're either ready to attack, run away, or you know, kind of freeze and hide, become invisible and not let people see us. And our brains prepare us for that by kind of getting our muscles ready to go, our heart rate, go, rate goes up, but our thinking brain at the same time kind of shuts down. So language and problem solving is not something that we need to use when we're in a dangerous situation. We just need to react. And so, the, I mean, and, and fight, flight, freeze is actually something, I mean, we, we were created beautifully that way because exactly. it's, it's a good thing, right? Exactly. In, in a normal situation to, yeah. to help us respond mm -hmm. to dangerous situations. Yeah. And then one of the examples that we use in, in some of the training is we, we talk about if you're driving your car and all of a sudden someone cuts you off and that feeling when you get that, your heart race, you're, you're, you're tense, yeah. you're, you, but you're reacting, you know, maybe without thinking. And so, so when, but 
when for children who are dealing with, with trauma, that's happening all the time. So what should happen is the danger goes away and our chemicals go back to normal and our language and our logic and our thinking skills turn back on again and we move about our day. But our brains are developed so that the parts we use the most become the strongest. So kids who are experiencing adversity over and over and over again and have this response triggered repeatedly, that part becomes the strongest part of their brain and they will go into fight, flight, or freeze much more quickly than you or I might. So what, so what is normal response for them is, I mean, it, it, it's not normal, but it's normal for them. Because exactly. That, and uh, it's protective for them. It's the right way for their brain to work. And we're talking about not just um, being stressed and getting and, and maybe suffering from depression later in life. You're talking about actual of neurological changes, right? Absolutely, the way that the brain develops changes. And in fact, you can see in kids with significant trauma histories, smaller regions of the brain that deal with language, fewer connections in their brain that deal with problem solving and logical decision making and memory. So it's harder for them to do the kinds of tasks that you might want in a classroom. They're gonna have a harder time with the language and the information right. processing. So that's what I wanted to do, uh, sort of the last part before, you know, uh, is to talk about, so what is it, what is, how does it impact a child in school? Oh, gosh. So you're going to see these kids that are going into this fight, flight, or freeze response much more quickly. And it may look like they're not paying attention. They are. They're just paying attention to the wrong things in terms of the educator's perspective. They're, they're looking for danger. S scanning, the, scanning the horizon, looking they're for dangers scanning. that, that may not Absolutely. be there, but for them it feels very, it is, it's very real. It's, it's not just like a fight, flight, or freeze response, it is. They're going into this danger response. They're not able to then take in the information and behave in the way that an educator wants them to. But, but as children, it, it can still be addressed. Here's the good news. The good news is, again, our brains are malleable, especially children's brains. So if we can get them feeling safe and help them to build skills, to build those parts of their brain that control their logic and their language and their decision-making, we can absolutely change their trajectory and send them in a different path for their Terrific. future. Well, and that's what we're going to talk about that in the next goal. segment. That is our goal. Thanks so much for being here. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion about childhood trauma, but shift the conversation into solutions, particularly in our schools. But first, see if you can answer this question. According to the landmark CDC Kaiser Permanente study, what is the most prevalent adverse childhood experience? Welcome back to Education Matters. Did you correctly answer C? The Kaiser study found that physical abuse is the most common adverse childhood experience reported by 28% of the respondents. Drug abuse in the home was number two reported by 26% of the study participants. Joining us now to continue our discussion, we have Christy Lockhart. Christy is a licensed school social worker, Kuntz Elementary School, Rowan Salisbury Schools. And then next to her is Elizabeth DeConti. Elizabeth is the director of the North Carolina Resilience and Learning Project of the Public School Forum. So thank you both for being here. Thank you. Uh, Elizabeth, I'm gonna start with you. Uh, uh, Dr. Rosenbaum shared what this looks like for kids in school. So 
the, the Resilience and Learning Project was designed to address some of this. So tell us a little bit about the model itself. So what you, know, what you do when you work with a school. Sure, so the first piece is we really want to make sure that there's school readiness and that the leadership of the school is bought in and excited about this. Um, and we also talk a lot about how this is more than just a one-time, one-year program. It really is meant to be a culture shift and a mindset shift that extends beyond our one-year intensive involvement in the school. Right, we've got some graphics we'll pull up now to sort of do as we walk through the steps of the program. Right, so the, the two components of the model are first a training piece. Um, so we train all staff across the school, so this includes not just teachers but also administrators, custodians, cafeteria workers. We had bus drivers attend one of our trainings. Any adult in the school that comes in contact with kids, we want to be a part of this and we give them an overview of trauma, a lot of the things that, that Katie talked about. Um, and then the second component is um, what we really feel like sets our model apart or makes us different from other models is that um, we have each school form a steering committee. We're calling those resilience teams. It's made up of the principal, um, a couple other administrators, um, student support staff, and a handful of teachers. And this is really where we feel like the change and the action happens, where they meet bi-weekly and go through a process of identifying some of their biggest needs and then working through an action planning process to come up with strategies to help address those needs. Great. Christy, you're on the resilience team, I believe, at uh, in the school in Rowan Salisbury. And as a school social worker, the discussion we just had in the first segment, I'm sure, didn't come as a surprise to you because you're, you're actually dealing with kids all the time. Tell me a little bit about your school and the, and the population. Yes. Um, Coons Elementary is about 90%, um, a little more, free and reduced lunch. Um, so high levels of poverty, um, highest in the district, actually. Uh, we have, um, I would say, a 70% um, black or Hispanic population. Um, and, you know, like came up in the, in the first part when, when Katie was speaking, a lot of dysregulation. Um, we see a lot of trauma and are really excited to be kind of focusing now on the resilient part. So talk to me a little bit about what, so the, the, this is elementary school, but what are you, I mean, everything that we just talked about, what are some of the things that you see, I guess, most frequently with families sure. and children? Yeah, we see um, a wide range, um, you know, from, from poverty issues, food insecurities, um, incarcerated parents, um, community violence has been a really big issue in Rowan County. Um, and I, I think that the, the great part about this project is it's good for the whole school. Um, and it will often address some of the traumas that we're not aware of. Right, because that's one of the things that we, we, we talk about in the training is, um, I mean, obviously we don't, we don't know every child that is experiencing something. The, Katie described some behaviors that might show up, but there's, right. there's a lot of kids that are in, that, in the class that may be quiet and well-behaved and reserved, but they're the ones that are actually, they may be suffering more than anyone else. They're just exactly. a different response. So Elizabeth, tell me a little bit about the school. So we're, um, the, the project is in two school districts now. Tell me a little bit about what's gone on so far in this first year. Yeah, so, so far we um, started out by doing an, a more in-depth training with each of the resilience teams that was a little longer than what we did with the all staff. And after that, there was a lot of eagerness and excitement to really get started in this work and get the information out to the rest of their staff and start meeting regularly to come up with these strategies. Um, and so we're now meeting um, regularly with each resilience team. And so each one is kind of in a different part of the process in meeting, but those are ongoing and will continue through the end of the year. So what kind of what kind of areas are the schools focusing on? Because it is it is unique. The schools determine what are the, the, the focus areas for them, right? Right. So um, 
each school has kind of picked several different things. So one has been teacher and staff self-care, knowing that high poverty, high need schools can increase burnout for teachers and create low morale. Um, so that's been one, wanting to improve parent and teacher relationships and parent engagement, um, looking at the aggressive behaviors and defiant behaviors that Katie and both Christy have mentioned um, and wanting to decrease those and decrease office referrals. Mm -hmm. um, and then another big one has just been improving connections and relationships between um, staff and students. Christy, you, 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 you sort of answered this, I think, already, but what made this appealing? Was it the fact that it was, it really was something that would benefit all children in the school? I, I think as a district, we're really starting to look at the whole child um, and, and realize, based on the research, that we're not going to be able to accomplish the education piece if we're not meeting those social and emotional needs. Right. What, what, are, what, are, what have you been doing, um, I guess, I mean, it's really early. This has been a, a, a few couple months in yeah. the school, but are you already doing some things differently? We are. Um, we're in the process of coming up with our action plan, um, but we have made some simple changes. To the physical environment, um, lighting, um, you know, greeting students when they come in, um, trying to be more strength-based and positive, even if we do have a correction in behavior, um, kind of meeting that with, with a ratio of three positives to one, you know. <laughs> so little tiny changes um, are happening all over the place. And that connection, as you mentioned, to students, that's actually one of the things I hear when the researchers talk about it is it's the, the children, they're not connected to, they have problems at home, they've, they're not, maybe they don't have the, the, the friend network, and so having an adult sort of, you know, right. I, I see you, right, yes. and that we have a connection here. And for many of our parents also have not felt that connection at the school. Right. Um, and so I think that's a really important piece of it. Right. Elizabeth, so we're going to, we've got some, some stats on the screen to talk about um, the, the, the results. What can... What have other systems and schools seen when they've implemented models like this in other states? Yeah, so this model kind of came from Massachusetts, um, but there are several other states across the country that are doing similar whole school models, and they've seen um, lots of impacts with lowering suspension rates and office referral rates, lower incidence of aggressive behaviors, um, improvements with academic achievement data, improvements in test scores, um, improved attendance rates. So um, kind of all over the board with um, lowering kind of some of the behaviors that they've been seeing and improving academics as well. Right, and so these are, and these are, like I said, these are, these are some pretty remarkable, um, you know, when you talk about suspension rates reduced 30 to 90 percent. Right. Obviously from an academic perspective, the, we, we need to maintain, you know, uh, good classroom order, but if the kids are out, if they're suspended, um, right. then, then they're not going to be learning. So this is, uh, it's, it's promising. We're, we're glad to see the work going underway. So thank you both for helping us understand a little bit more about it. Thank Thanks you. so thank much. You. After the break, this week's Leadership Spotlight. Each week, Education Matters spotlights individuals demonstrating exceptional leadership in education in North Carolina based on nominations from you, our viewers. This week, we spotlight Anthony Green in Greensboro. The College of Education at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University major program is our teacher education program. We've been fortunate in the last 24 months where we've been able to procure right around $10 million in grants. And the primary focus of all of those grants really focuses on how can we 
increase the number of teachers who serve our state of North Carolina. We're really looking at using the, the medical model where the classroom teacher or the candidate is in the public school every day, Monday through Friday, 7.30 a.m. until 5 o'clock in the afternoon, really learning beside a veteran classroom teacher. Uh, what makes us unique is our focus on equity, access, and advocacy, specifically looking at our rural communities, understanding that unfortunately there's inequity. We want to make sure that regardless of whom we produce, they can walk into a community and really do an analysis of that community, understanding what the resources are, what the assets are, and then begin to work with the people within that community to help empower what happens in their communities. And then asking the critical questions, what can we do, whether it's through practice, through research, or through policy, to begin to address those inequities so that we're helping individuals get the resources they need so that they can succeed in their community. About 80% of our classroom teachers nationwide are Caucasian. So our job is to try to increase the number of ethnic racial minority teachers. So one of the things that we're intentionally trying to do is make sure that A, we tell the story of what it means to be an educator. When you look at many of our millennials and what they're committed to in terms of social justice and uh, fight for freedom and equity, their mission, their belief lines up very well to what it is we do in education. So we're trying to make sure that we're, that we're celebrating the successes, not only of our alumni and the people in our programs, but all of our educators across the state of North Carolina. Oftentimes the community is not very familiar with what it is we do in the classroom. So we're trying to make sure that our candidates understand that you just don't teach the classroom, but you're teaching the community. So how do you now engage those individuals at the local barbershop? How is this a communal effort to educate rather than just an individual to educate? That was Dr. Graham, not Dr. Green, uh, at North Carolina A&T. If you know someone else who needs to be recognized, please visit our website at ncforum.org, click on Education Matters, and you'll find a link to nominate someone in your community. After the break, this week's final word. I personally first heard the term Adverse Childhood Experiences, or ACEs, in 2014. While the landmark study was conducted in 1995, it's been more recent that the conversation has turned to the impact of ACEs in school. The research was so compelling that we decided the Public School Forum to include it in our 16th study group as one of the key forces limiting educational opportunity in North Carolina. Now, we're still early in our journey, as you heard from Elizabeth and Christy from Rowan Salisbury Schools, but I'm encouraged by the number of educators, other professionals, and policymakers who recognize that emotional well-being and mental health are just as real and just as impactful on a young person's educational progress as any other long-term physical health problem. But that understanding, unfortunately, is not universal. We held a convening with district and school leaders and teachers from across the state recently to discuss what we share with you today, but in a more deep dive way. I was tweeting out updates and content from our various experts who were presenting, and we received one response from Twitter who called herself Deplorable Jean. She tweeted, why don't you just teach coping skills for real world problems, safe spaces and Play-Doh isn't the answer. Now, honestly, I don't look to Twitter for the most thoughtful and informed commentary, but Deplorable Jean actually echoed similar comments we have heard from some quarters when we talk about supporting children who have experienced trauma. 
They think we're advocating coddling them or ignoring discipline, and what they really need is to toughen up. Now, these are children who may be experiencing physical abuse, sexual abuse, violence, and drug abuse in their home. Toughen up? Do we tell people who are suffering from cancer or heart disease just to toughen up? In our training, we talk about shifting the question from what is wrong with you to what happened to you. For too many children, what happens to them is the key question. And it's clear that we need to address that part first if, they hope to, if we hope to have any success for them in school and in life. That's it for this week's show. Tune in next week. We're going to have two deans on from the schools of education recently announced as part of the first universities in the new teaching fellows program. And we're also going to have a media roundtable about hot issues and news and education. Don't miss it. Thanks for watching and we'll see you next week.